Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the planet. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. We've got a great program for you tonight, uh, and we have the full team as well. So let's uh, let's go around and see how, how everybody's doing. Sam, what have you been up to? Uh, working, basically. <laughs> Somebody has to, Sam. Yes, exactly. And in fact, we were just talking, uh, just literally just before we came on about uh, setting our, our next meeting date for the Genesis Project film and uh, getting that moving again. So everybody out there, pray that we can continue to move forward with these uh, great projects, especially as, as as we have quite a few very big announcements coming up in the next couple of weeks. So make sure you keep an eye out for that. But uh, Diane, how are you, Dan? I hear you've uh, you've been both you've got the boast out of all of us of how cold it is. <laughs> yes, yes, at the moment, uh, it, it's a, a matter of extremes. I gather you're melting in heat waves and we're having yeah. frosts and, uh, and frozen things here. Yes, yes, but, uh, but other, otherwise I'm well apart from the frosty cold mornings. Yes. Good stuff, good stuff. John, what have you been up to? Well, the house I'm in, the water pipes burst last night before we got home and uh, that's not the most comfortable way to run Australia. And apart from that, I spent all yesterday traveling. Australia is a big place. So I came from Adelaide to a little mining town of Cobar. So it was a very long sit and drive and all that sort of stuff. So good to be standing still today. Yeah. And uh, Craig, I understand you're going to be leaving us a little bit early this evening because you've got a field trip. Yeah, I'm heading off to Royal George, which is in the central east of Tasmania and going on to a, a private property that's just apparently laden with fossils. So that'll be an exciting... Good. Now, right? John, remind me, because we were in uh, Tasmania back in 2018, and we were preaching in a church, and that very afternoon somebody in the church said, oh, I know a friend of mine that you can go into his private property and go digging up fossils there. And we went straight after there that afternoon and spend most of the afternoon digging up fossils, wonderful seashells and all sorts of stuff. That was, if my memory serves me correctly, that was roughly uh, sort of mid-east uh, Tasmania. Do you remember where that was? Do you remember where that was at all, John? Uh, I remember the site. I don't remember the name of the place. No. Sorry about that. But no. Craig, it wasn't near St. Mary's, was it? It wasn't near St. Mary's. It might have been. It was good anyway. It was very good. But yeah, uh, it's good stuff. So yeah, so you'll be heading down there later to do a field trip out there, which should be really good. Yeah, just one just comment before I forget, Craig, if you don't mind me interrupting here, you asked a question about Cambrian plants, and I was sure we filed lots of articles on it. So anybody who's listening, if you want to know about plants present in the Cambrian, go and have a look at our fact file. Look up Cambrian plants. There's three or four reports from journals uh, of Cambrian plants, but the general world is absolutely ignorant. They're ignorant, even ignorant of the fossil thorns we found in the Ordovician, verified as thorny plants. So therefore they want to reclassify the Ordovician. That's how the game works. But uh, have a look, creation fact file, Cambrian plants, uh, and our listeners, you go and have a look too. 
And the background story to that, of course, John, is that we um, are having discussions with people on social media and that they one of the arguments is that they deny that any land plants have been found with marine animals in the fossil record and especially the Cambrian. And that's that, that's why we go out and do these fossil hunts to, to, to find evidence that uh, proves that there was a catastrophic flood. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good stuff. Well, we've got a full program. Um, we've got archaeology reports from me and John. We've got a news report from Diane. Uh, but first off, because, uh, Craig, you've got to run off and go and do a field trip in about half an hour. Uh, why don't you uh, kick off our ministry um, update with a little report that you've got here? So let's get your your slides up and ready to go and uh, take take it away. Okay, hopefully that's up there now. Yeah, we can all see that. That's all good. Yeah, okay. So during the week, I went down to Hobart, the capital of Tasmania, because my wife needed to go to hospital fairly urgently. She's on the men now, so there's no need to worry there, but she was in quite a bit of discomfort. I wasn't allowed into the hospital one morning to visit her, so I thought I'd pop down and have a look at the Tasmanian museum and art gallery and there you can see it it's a lovely museum it's well laid out and you can see their byline there stories that move you and i can say you know there was lots of good displays there but there certainly were some stories on the evolutionary sense that moved me to tears here's some of the unique fauna that we have in tasmania obviously the stuffed variety but we've got some quolls on the left-hand side, the tiger quoll on the top top left, the eastern quoll, which is now extinct on the mainland, but still found in Tasmania. These are, are both regarded as endangered species here. We've got the Tasmanian devil on the bottom right, also now an, an endangered species, as we spoke of a, a, a few shows ago, because of the devil facial tumour disease. <clears throat> and then, of course, the egg-laying mammals, the monotremes, platypus and the echidna on the top right. They're not regarded as endangered species. But there is another endangered species. In fact, we've got quite a few endangered species here in Tasmania. Maybe that's being part of an island on the southern end of a remote continent. And here, here's one here, the giant freshwater crayfish. This is actually the largest freshwater invertebrate in the world. It can get up to nearly 50 centimetres. Or for you imperial people nearly two foot and they can get up to about three kilograms in weight so they're quite a hefty crayfish we've actually had some on display at seahorse world in the past and they're they're, they're a beautiful animal but they are endangered they live in the freshwater rivers the larger rivers in the northern part of the state including around where i live but there was another display that caught my attention that also displayed the giant freshwater crayfish and that was this one it was called extinction studies so there's a drawing of the giant freshwater crayfish there's also the start of a drawing of the orange-bellied parrot of which there's you know, less than 50 individuals i think at the moment still in existence and the idea of this particular exhibit was that the artist would draw an endangered species with the knowledge that in time the paper and the drawing would fade, the paper would disintegrate in time, 
sort of reflecting extinction. So here's the sign there and what it says, the process of drawing and erasure or evolution and extinction is repeated in full knowledge that the paper will deteriorate and the eraser shavings will accumulate. Now I can handle the analogy that, you know, maybe the animals approaching extinction and that sort of can relate to the, the drawing and the de degradation of the paper. But I cannot handle the fact that evolution reflects either of these two creations. The, the drawing, of course, is regarded by everyone as a creation, yet in the museum's mind at least, the real giant freshwater crayfish is regarded as evolution as something that's evolved. Clearly, the creation of the drawing is nowhere near the complexity of the three-dimensional uh, self-moving, self-reproducing creation of God in the giant freshwater crayfish. So that's just one of those things that the museums are teaching. Again, it's still school holidays here and there's lots of kids learning this sort of stuff. Another display, and given that we're talking a lot about archaeology today, I thought we'd just quickly look at some of the Aboriginal displays that they had here. And the idea that Aboriginals are one of the oldest civilizations on Earth, if not the oldest, and been around 35, 40 plus thousand years, um, it's not obviously agreed with by us, but they're believed to have been in Tasmania for about 35,000 years, and they call it there an unimaginably long time. The Aboriginals walked to Tasmania along the land bridge that was that's now Bass Strait between the mainland and the island, and we, we hold to that as well, but that it wasn't that long ago. It was probably during the Ice Age of Job's time, a few hundred years after the flood, about 4,000 years ago. But consider that the Aboriginals, when they came to Australia, most likely came in boats from India and they needed the technology of that. And it doesn't surprise us because they are descendants of Adam, uh, sorry, of well, Adam, of course, but Noah, who built the ark. But here's a model from the 1840s that shows the, the canoes that were built by the Aboriginals of the time in Tasmania. We're not sure if this one was built by an Aboriginal or a colonial, but it is indeed an accurate replica of the, the type of crafts they built. This is the extent of Aboriginal maritime technology after 35,000 years in Tasmania where at the time of their discovery by Europeans, this is the technology of ships that the Europeans were building. Now, I'm not at, at any point suggesting that Europeans are more intelligent than Aboriginals. Of course, they're not. There's Aboriginals in this day and age that are more than capable of getting PhDs in maritime shipbuilding uh, expertise. But what it does show is that there's been a degradation of the technological uh, know-how of Aboriginals since they first came to Tasmania and indeed Australia. You don't see 
really any evidence of any complex ships being built by Aboriginals in Australia. I think that the the secular viewpoint that they've been here 35,000 years and yet can only make a rudimentary canoe is, you know, is, is not very, um, you know, com complementary to the Aboriginals in any way, shape or form, whereas the biblical viewpoint is reflecting the fact that they've uh, been probably few individuals in a much shorter period before that didn't have the, the knowledge of shipbuilding as they moved around Australia and, and got to Tasmania and it's just been lost. Here's a full-size one. So, so since the early 1800s, the Aboriginals uh, had, had actually lost the, the capacity to make canoes at all, but uh, a group of Aboriginal people, the local Indigenous people, have decided to revive the, the art of canoe building and did this in 2007. That's a full-size one there at the bottom of the screen. And they even were able to use it on calm water around the edges of Tasmanian coastline. So what can we conclude from this? That time has been no help to Aboriginal technological advancement. Rather, it was actually leading to the extinction of their knowledge. And that's for some of the reasons we have just discussed. Time doesn't evolve anything, including knowledge or intelligence. It only destroys. And the reason that the, the Europeans were able to advance their te technological know-how, they were direct descendants of Javan, which the Bible in, in Genesis chapter 10 says were, were the, the maritime peoples, the shipbuilders, probably also the Phoenicians came from that line. Or certainly the Greeks did, and they were all great ocean-going um, peoples. So they you know, were able to educate each other, to interact and keep the technology going and improving, whereas others, such as the Aboriginals, came to a big land mass and spent most of their time on land and just lost that knowledge. Modern advancement, therefore, only comes from ongoing, organised and careful education of the next generation. We're only one generation away from losing knowledge on so many things. So design and technology only comes from creative minds. And that's, that's about it for me, Joe. Great stuff. Thank you very, very much for that, Craig. I'll just take your slides down off the screen so you can exit and come back to us. And I must say, I do enjoy having uh, your little reports, listening to your little reports. And something that I've done before, um, because, you know, these museums, especially even the, the secular museums, they have such fantastic evidence and they will often sort of shoot themselves in the foot, right, with what they, with what they display and what they put up. So I've taken people around secular museums before as a sort of a tour guide, gone through and we've looked at what is the actual biblical evidence that we see on display here. So uh, it, it's amazing what you can actually uh, find in these, in these secular places. Craig, the uh, thing that strikes me is the similarity of that to Aboriginal um, reed boat or whatever you want to call it, how similar it is to many of the Middle Eastern reed boats. Um, I guess yeah, true. from my point of view, there's only a few ways you can actually make a boat out of reeds that will work. And uh, that's probably the, the ideal there. But it very is very similar. And my experience is Aborigines do 
have a history through India back to the middle of the world. So wouldn't be surprised if they brought the technology with them. And as you said, evidentially, historically, provably, they lost it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think even the style of some of their, their canoes are similar as well to some of the South Pacific Islanders, yeah. just in the general style and shape. Definitely, it definitely looks like, I mean, we talk about archaeology today, and one of the things I've seen is the uh, Egyptian reed boats. Um, it's almost identical to the ones that they, they found as well. Uh, and presumably anywhere that you had reeds, you had similar ones. Um, it's just some some climates are, are are better at preserving them than others. You're not really going to get a you know English swamp boat <laughs> preserved particularly well. But uh, there we go. Thanks for that, Craig. Really enjoyed that. Yeah. And obviously you've got to dash off at some point soon. So thank you all very much for uh, for that. And thank you, Craig. Um, John, how's how's ministry doing your your place? We've got a ministry report from you, I believe. Okay, just a brief report because I'll do an evidential type report a bit later. Mm -hmm. But uh, what's interesting, of course, is I've been down in the outback, as people would say. Uh, in fact, the town I'm in today has a big sign outside, welcome to the outback. This is after I've been travelling for 12 hours, basically, uh, during the day. So we are outback, the opposite of up front, of course. And uh, we've been doing some field trips, full report a bit later, but really looking at the evidence, talking to people. So we've done field trips, we've done... Uh, uh, public groups. We've got another public group and a barbecue today. So our country barbecue, good stuff. Praise the Lord for that. So basically, I've been pretty busy. Um, our newsletter comes out next week. So if you're not yet on our printed newsletter list or you're in England where Joseph is planning on getting one ready, can I encourage you? Get in touch with the ministry. Let us know that you want a printed version or the electronic version of the printed version. So that's what's kept me pretty busy. And uh, again, this afternoon, barbecues and public meeting in town. Yeah, we have been, uh, we've got a print version of the newsletter on its way. It should be with us in a couple of days time. So uh, from uh, tomorrow, there'll be an option to be able to select one uh, and get one sent to your home on our website. So check that out. Uh, that'll be up from tomorrow. So if you want a, a physical copy as well as your electronic copy, make sure you're signed up online as well because it will come through to your inbox. But if you want a, uh, a historical um, evidence news, I think it would be uh, uh, a way of describing <laughs> this one. We've got some big announcements coming out. Uh, so watch that space. But also another thing which we've had uh, printed just this week is our brochure for the Rocks Cry Out UK Fossil Convention. Um, all the details in there, all the details of how to go on it, the speakers that we have. We've got a great setup of speakers there. Uh, you can find all this information, obviously, online as well. But if you'd like one of these, we've had these printed, which we're going to be handing them out at places like... Um, creation fest which we'll be going to in a couple of weeks time so we're still looking for volunteers if you want to come and volunteer please do uh, get in touch with us uh, we'll be at the truth in science uh, summer school uh, we'll be at several other things happening over the next little while as well in terms of ministry and of course if you're in the uk and you want ministry get in touch or if you're in tasmania and want ministry get in touch with craig or if you're in queensland or actually you're not in queensland at the moment are you john but if you want ministry no, yeah. Back. <laughs> just get in touch with us in uh, in general so uh, exciting times and i've been very very busy organizing 
all of that kind of stuff as well this week, especially for some of the big announcements that will be out next week. So watch this space and watch very closely. So um, yeah, no, that's pretty good on all the all the updates and stuff. But I think what it's a, it's about time to do is to move on to our news item. There's been a lot of news that has happened in the last little while. And back when we sort of started creation conversations and we were trying to sort of find our theme, uh, and I think we've done really well. I think we've come along really well. But one of the things that we used to do was try and have a little sort of topical, um, you know, little snippet, a look in the news, something that had happened. And because, uh, of course, it started off with we had, um, you know, climate change in the news and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and we dealt with a few different sort of uh, political things as well and social things. And one of those things has cropped up once again. So it's about time to we do it. We do a little, a little <laughs> news article. And I've actually asked Diane to uh, bring us some comments on it. And this is the news which you may have heard about because it was broadcasted all over the world uh, in all different media and news outlets that the Church of England have been unable to define what is a woman. Uh, and in fact, it wasn't too long back where um, there was, I believe it was a big court case type thing uh, in the USA. And the comment was made was that I don't know what a woman is because I'm not a biologist. Well, we have a resident biologist who also identifies as a woman. That's correct, Diane? <laughs> yes. Good. Yes, indeed. Well, <laughs> I thought it would be good for you to bring us a, a little snippet about this, a little bit of, well, can we actually get to the definition of a woman, both from a biological perspective and a biblical perspective? And then when you finish your little segment, me and John uh, can can comment on it as well. So, Diane, why don't we hand over to you now to take our next little uh, news item, uh, which is, I've just put it up on the screen here, what is a woman? Yes, this was something that was reported in the uh, in the secular news, uh, in the uh, British news actually, and uh, just shall uh, <clears throat> I get my slides here? Uh, yes, there we are. Uh, <clears throat> a question was asked in um, the uh, one of the Church of England meetings that they're having of their synod, which is basically like their parliament um, for, for the church. And uh, um, <clears throat> there are lay people, there are clergy, and there are bishops who uh, meet together. And this, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, where they work out sort of um, policy and uh, statements and things like that of the Church of England. And uh, this uh, lay member of the synod uh, got up and uh, because this is an issue that's been bubbling along over the last few years uh, and asked this question just uh, what is the Church of England's definition of a woman right nice straightforward question and one of the bishops got up and this was the answer there is no official definition which reflects the fact that until fairly recently definitions of this kind were thought to be self-evident as reflected in the marriage liturgy now by the marriage liturgy they mean the uh, the ceremony the marriage ceremony that's in the uh, official prayer book of the um, church of england and you can go and read that in in uh, any of the prayer books and uh, 
there's no attempt there to actually define what is a man or a woman. It just says that uh, it just refers to the man says this, the woman says this, and no one asks any questions. So it's um, it should be self-evident. Now, this isn't the first time that uh, some prominent people have been asked this question and uh, have uh, <coughs> failed. Um, even this year, <coughs> there was a question to some politicians uh, and this is a headline that was in the Telegraph uh, back in March of this year. Uh, and this is their exact headline. What is a woman? Labor front benches don't seem to be uh, sure. Now, the interesting thing is that the uh, two Labor front benches <coughs> they were referring to were both women. Uh, and uh, if you uh, go on and read this story, and it was reported in various other, other media as well, uh, and it's basically a story where two prominent female uh, British politicians were unable to answer this question. And the irony is uh, it, it was in interviews for what is uh, uh, designated as International Women's Day. And one of them was on a BBC show called The Woman's Hour. Now, you couldn't make it up, could you? <laughs> uh, re really? Uh, well, in fact, uh, those bishops, or those uh, church leaders rather, and the, um, these politicians should have gone to uh, the Creation Research website uh, where we had an answer to that question. In fact, we wrote this back in uh, to, uh, 2020 uh, because this issue has been bubbling along in the background uh, for the last few years and uh, every now and again gets some publicity like these two instances. <laughs> And this was the question, man or woman, is there a real definition of a man and a woman in a world that wants fluid gender? Now, you can read the details of that question uh, on our uh, Ask site, which is Ask John Mackay. Uh, we'll put the um, the link up for that uh, later on at the, at the end of my slideshow. Uh, but basically, we just went back to the common sense one that ordinary people have always known. So <clears throat> you can imagine um, uh, a few people in the park and one of them says to the other, uh, 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 what's that? Um, <laughs> a few years ago, no one would think that that was, um, <clears throat> that was a serious issue. In fact, when we were writing the answer to that question, uh, I couldn't help thinking of, a, um, uh, of an old Hollywood musical where there was a song uh, that, that went, uh, folks are dumb where I come from, they don't have any learning, still they're happy as can be doing what comes naturally. And one of the verses in that, in that song is, my tiny little brother who's never read a book knows one sex from the other, all he had to do was look. Uh, and if you read the question we have on the Ask site, uh, we have a couple of instances of uh, discussions and in fact that was the uh, answer in uh, uh, <clears throat> one of the discussions that that came up uh, it was self-evident now why why do we have this problem well uh, there are a couple of issues and we won't go into the whole uh, transgender issue we could do a, a longer program on that but there are a couple of issues which I think need to be brought up uh, one is the manipulation of, of language these days. We often read in the news reports and articles on this issue this uh, statement that gender is assigned at birth. Uh, now, I um, did manage to see 
uh, quite a few births um, originally when I was trained in medicine. And uh, when the baby was born, no one sort of looked around and said, um, now, uh, what sex are we going to assign this baby? Uh, it was, uh, was self-evident. No one, no one asked the mother, you know, what sex would you like to assign your baby? Um, <clears throat> it's... Uh, it was uh, obvious what, what sex it was. So we need to think of um, when is sex actually determined or when is gender actually determined? And we need to go even behind that. What is it that actually determines gender? Because that will um, answer that question. Is sex assigned at birth? Well, it all goes back to chromosomes, a little bit of basic biology, DNA, which is your genetic code, um, is encoded on long, long strings of uh, a molecule which has to be wound up and packaged whenever a cell is going to divide um, so that it doesn't get all tangled up and the uh, in information is preserved. So when a cell is going to divide, all of the DNA gets um, tightly wound up and uh, by a very, very careful, uh, clever design process, um, and packaged into uh, a series of uh, structures called chromosomes. And it is in the chromosomes that we can tell just what an individual cell, uh, what sex an individual cell is. Um, you don't have to go to a whole body. Now, here are some um, chromosomes from a woman, and you can see there are 46 altogether. And <clears throat> there are two that determine what sex you are. They're right down the bottom on the right-hand side there, and they're called X, whereas all of the others are simply given numbers. So if you add that all up, you've got 46 altogether, and you have two that are the same, and they're both called X. So if you want to write that in shorthand to define uh, a female, it's called 46XX. Now for a... Uh, hang on. Uh, let me just move on to the next slide here. Yes, uh, for a male, um, <clears throat> they have uh, the same number, but uh, if you look down the bottom of the right-hand uh, picture there, you've got um, 46 altogether, but there are two chromosomes that are unequal size, and they're called X and Y. So if you're going to summarise the chromosomes of a male, it's usually written as 46XY. Now, when it comes to uh, producing the next generation, we have to go through a bit of a process where um, <clears throat> from the mother, you start off with 46 with two Xs, and the um, that has to be split into two uh, in order to give half of those chromosomes to the next generation. So you need to split it into 23 altogether and make sure you have one of those um, sex chromosomes. So if for a woman, right, the two Xs are separated. So the, the cells in a, um, a, a female ovum, a female egg, have 23 chromosomes, including an X. Now, from the father, if you split that into two, in order to make male sperm, which uh, one of which will go to the, the next generation, the X and the Y get separated out so that sperm um, or male cells can come in either 23 plus an X 
or 23 including an X rather, or 23 including a Y. Now, in order to get the next generation, so if the, if the next generation is going to produce a, a female from the mother, we have 23X. And from the father, you have to have the cell that has the X in it. And you combine those together and you have a daughter. So again, we're back to 46XX. So, and the daughter will grow up and become a woman. All very self-evident, never a problem up, up until the, the, the last few years. And so new life begins with you already being determined to be a male or a female when all you consist of, and everyone starts out life like, you know, life like this, right? One large round cell with the components from uh, a female ovum and a male sperm. So you are male and female before you are uh, before you even have a body. Um, when you are just one cell, because all of the cells in your body are derived from this, and uh, <clears throat> That means that later on in life, if you want to manipulate the body, you're not going to change whether it's male or female. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, we, you need to keep that in mind for the, with the uh, current um, climate of, of uh, transgender. Um, <clears throat> so, in fact, what we are... what is really happening is that gender is not assigned at birth it's recognized at birth it's the end process which started off with that one cell which then developed according to the genetic potential that was in it and of course these days gender can be recognized even before birth because we have all of these um, scans and, and various prenatal tests so it's not assigned it's just recognizing what was already there right from the very beginning and uh, <clears throat> we need to um, consider well, what why is uh, what why is this happening why are we having this these debates I mean bishops and um, uh, MPs uh, in spite of all of the scorn that gets poured on them are uh, are not dumb and not lacking in knowledge uh, but they do have a problem. And the problem is who is their authority? So whose authority are they submitting to? Why are they um, running away from what is what an obvious question is? Now, are they submitting to the views of political activists or particularly for the church authorities, we need to, to challenge them. Uh, are they submitting to the creator's word? because the origin of gender goes all the way back to the beginning when God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. And then it states very clearly, male and female, he created them. It goes back to the beginning. You have to go back to the creator's word. And that's the challenge. Um, that the Anglican Church is trying to avoid at the moment, uh, and they need to um, <clears throat> they need to seriously take up that challenge and decide: Are they going to submit to the world, or are they going to submit to the Creator's word? And if we can just go back to uh, us now, I'm sure um, uh, John and Joseph and Craig uh, have uh, things to add to that. Uh, <clears throat> 
if we can just come back to um, to us. We're, at back, the we're back now, Diane. So just come right. back to yeah. us. Yes, um, I've certainly got things to say, but John, why don't why don't you start? Give us a uh, some of your thoughts on on this. Well, just in case you were here beforehand, you may notice Craig has disappeared and gone fossil collecting in central Tasmania, um, which, if you do not know, is that little island. We like to poke fun at the size of Tasmania. Those of us who live on the big mainland, and he's out collecting fossils all day. So he's uh, he's out there and off our conversation at the moment, but he'll be back again next week. A couple of things to show confusion that's existing uh, on this trip. I popped into a rest stop and the rest stop had a toilet and the toilet was labelled on one side mice and on the other side rats. Now, I was a bit puzzled as to which one I should use. I wonder how you would solve that, right? Um, was I a mice uh, or a mouse, singular, or was I a rat or rats? Um, because... I've had experience with mice and rats and they come in male and female versions. So we have some public confusion out there. We had one teacher who got herself into a real serious conundrum because she was not a Christian, but she was disgusted at the conversation that was occurring around the staff room on what do we do about the toilets? I mean, if we have male boys and we have female girls and we have trannies, in the middle, which toilet do they use? And this teacher said, listen, let's not be stupid. If you want to know what sex they are, give them to me and I'll pull their pants down and you'll soon see. Now, she got into trouble for being so blunt, but in reality, I still remember watching old Hollywood movies where the lady, out of sight, of course, you just saw her squirming and agonising as the baby was being born. And then all of a sudden, there's the old clinical grandfather doctor figure holding up, you saw the baby from the rear end, and he says, it's a boy. Now, it was that obvious, the only time in your life you're liable to get public applause by being naked in a hospital, by the way, but that's what they used to do. It's so obvious. It's, <coughs> excuse me, it's a boy. Or well, hold up, it's a girl. It was that obvious. You will find that God doesn't expect you to believe those things which are not actually that obvious. He made them male. He made them female. It's part of his creation. And if you look at messed up chromosomes, and Diane might want to talk about this too, because one of the things I did was deliberately go and do three years of genetics because I was born with a genetic problem and I wanted to see how likely it was that my children would inherit this. So as part of this, I came across all sorts of people, 3X or 2Xs and a Y, and it did not improve the gender or the sex of that person. It was a degeneration. So the world has not evolved. It's devolved, including sexual degeneration. But they did not become trannies. They usually simply degenerated and became almost sexless. In many cases, they did not evolve into a different gender. So that's my observations and contribution. I decided I was a rat, by the way at that public toilet because that's where most of the males seem to go. Um, I don't like being a rat. I would have much rather been a boy rat or a girl rat. But you can think through that. What do you think, Joseph? Well, I just wanted to comment on um, the the church's stance on this, right? You'll find plenty of information on um, gender and sex 
and created roles and all that kind of stuff on creationresearch.net. Click on Ask John Mackay, click on the fact file. There's plenty of information over there. But it's something that's become more and more evident, and this is only one of the pieces of you know evidence that's been going on for a very long time, pretty much for the last 50 to 60 years, that the Anglican church for sure, but also a lot of churches in general, have become less and less about being about worshipping God and more and more about being a social construct. And this is simply one thing, you know, one, one of those pieces of evidence that you can see the sort of degeneration of the church. Now, that's certainly not uh, true for every single Anglican church you walk into. It's certainly not true for every single person who goes to an Anglican church. But we're using the Church of England as a very sort of general term um, because that's really what they've become now. Now, if you are a church out there, Anglican or not, who stands up and says you can't define what a woman is, you're doing one of two things. You're either lying because in your holy book, the Bible, it gives you a blatantly clear uh, description of what a male and female is. In fact, that description actually comes from God himself. The very definition of male and female comes from God, who actually said, I made them male and female in the beginning. And even Jesus Christ said that, right? Uh, in the book of Matthew, from the beginning, he made them male and female. So you've got a clear definition of what male and female is. The man was made in the image of God. The woman was made out of man. And there's your definition. Now, if you want to say that there is no definition of what a woman is and you're a Christian or claim to be a Christian, you're either lying or you do not worship the same God as me and John and Diane and Sam, because we worship the God who said since the beginning I've made them male and female. It's Jesus Christ, right? The one who actually made the male and female in the first place and wrote that definition in Scripture. So you are either lying or you are, well, quite frankly, spitting in the face of the creator who actually made the male and female in the first place. So do you see how big this issue suddenly becomes? It's not just a, oh, we don't deal with the things, you know, we're going to leave the social constructs and the social debate and the, you know, ideology to the scientists and the biologists and the politicians, and we're just going to focus on scripture. Now, when you're dealing with scripture, and that's, by the way, one of the things we're talking about tonight, no matter what aspect of your life you look into, scripture will affect it in some way because it's the way that you view the world uh, through the light of scripture that actually becomes part of your Christian or biblical worldview. So when dealing with archaeology, it doesn't matter whether we're dealing with a king like Nebuchadnezzar, who's specifically mentioned in the Bible, or whether we're dealing with stone tools from a Neanderthal, your view of scripture, your beliefs and your biblical worldview is going to affect the way that you understand that world around you. So it becomes extremely important and extremely vital to, well, okay, what is the definition of male and female? God told us what it was. He made us male and female in the beginning. God made Adam the first man. He made Eve out of Adam. And then it even goes on to tell us what roles we play within our created gender. Right. So and that's reiterated again and again in the New Testament as well. So be very, very careful out there, because if you start saying stuff like, well, you know, it's not really important who's male and female. I'm sorry, the creator of the universe would strongly disagree with you. It's also interesting, Joseph, to notice that what used to be regarded as sexual perversions and illegal activities such as lesbianism, homosexuality, etc., is directly connected to your ability to accept God's definition 
or your willingness to reject it. So when you look at your biblical teaching and follow it all the way through regarding sex, God made them male and female uh, back in Genesis. And you can then say, therefore, uh, and you follow all the therefores through scripture and God pre specifically prohibits anything, <clears throat> excuse me, not based on that. So when you have a look at <clears throat> homosexuality, God forbids it from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament. Mm -hmm. You may remember we had a famous footballer out here who basically lost his career because he wrote down how ungodly the homosexual act was. Of course, he would have avoided a fair bit if he put in a reference from the Bible instead of stating it as his own opinion. So the Apostle Paul in Corinthians lists the reasons why homosexuality is wrong and why homosexuality will be judged by God as evil. Now, that's incredibly unpopular. But the reason homosexuality is popular is they've rejected God's definition of gender and sex and therefore the legitimacy of marriage or choosing singleness, right? Once you go further than that, like I spoke to a policeman, a Christian policeman in town, and I said, well, how far downhill have we gone? Um, do we have animal sex? You know, people having sex, mating animals? He said, yes, we just don't have enough policemen to even act on that. It's been illegal in Western society because of the Bible's teaching against sex with animals. But it's being ignored now because we can't define gender. And therefore, and therefore, can you define human? In the end, you can't define human. Therefore, can you define legitimate sex? No. Therefore, I want to marry my motorbike. Yes, that's hit the headlines in the press. A guy who legitimately wanted to be mated with his motorbike. And it becomes absurd. And you see the truth of Romans chapter 1 when Paul says, when people leave God out of knowledge, it is God himself who hands them over to such stupidity that you have two women on, on media saying, we can't define a woman. And they're both women and have been ever since they were born, ever since before they were born, ever since their point of conception, as Diane rightly pointed out, the world becomes absurd and foolish and it begins to self-destruct uh, anything else joe no i think that's good i mean it's just i shared with you a while back um a sort of funny comedy clip from the 1970s 1980s very famous uh, sitcom here in the uk called yes prime minister Right, which features uh, a prime minister and his sort of two helpers, um, members in the you know lords and so on and so forth, and they were discussing the Church of England. And I come across this clip on YouTube because it's quite funny and very tame compared to a lot of stuff in sitcoms today. And it's also quite a clever sitcom. It's based around politics, right, and uh, social issues and so on and so forth. And they were talking about the Church of England and the appointment of a new bishop. And I just remember the closing punchline uh, where they're talking about the two candidates. One wants to get God out of the church. The other one wants to get the queen out of the church. And they said, don't be ridiculous. You can't take the queen out of the church. She's the most important part of the church, of course, referring to the Anglican church. And so the prime minister says, well, what about God then? And they say, I think God is what we would refer to as an optional extra. <laughs> and it really does... Uh, this is you know back in the 70s 80s and it's only gone downhill from there the church as a 
institute an anglican church as an institute really has purely become a social construct rather than actually having anything to do with god and you can see evidence of this in the larger scale um every single day with reports like this now again that's not to say that's the truth with every single you know anglican anglican congregation that's certainly not the truth about every single member who goes to an anglican church myself and diane included right but as a general construct um it's Obviously, nothing as it once was, but it has purely just become a, a social thing, uh, as a, po a political thing, as opposed to something which upholds the word of God. So it's a challenge to the Church of England, as well as to any other church out there that thinks it can't define a woman. Number one, make sure that you actually are worshipping the one true God who actually has created the male and female and, uh, and defines it in his book. And number two, make sure that you're not lying just for the sake of popularity right so they're the two the two challenges there okay go ahead john sorry okay now i was going to say it's probably time sam i can see some questions have popped up there to put in our first little question time before joe and i swap over to giving you an update on evidence and uh and archaeology and things like that so absolutely I, can i just before we dive into questions yes. and thank yous and all that if i could just say uh, one thing and john you're free, free to comment as well um we really appreciate our audience it is absolutely fantastic we seem to have sort of uh, broken a, 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 a you know gone over the peak uh, or hit a milestone or whatever you want to call it um we're gathering more and more viewers every single week which is wonderful and we want to thank you all and we also want to thank you for all of the engagement in the live chat it's fantastic particularly the questions and the questions are wonderful and as we say always stick your questions in because if we don't deal with it uh, in that evening's program we always hang on to the questions and come back on it uh, in one of our future uh, you know dedicated Q&A programs but I just want to read to you from the Bible very quickly um, I'd like to read to you from 1 Peter chapter 3 and uh, it's from verse 15, very well known. And I'm sure Sam has uh, put this up in the chat many, many times. It says, but sanctify the Lord in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. And then verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now, I would just like to say a reminder to all of those out there but particularly to those uh, who are christians who are watching and are in the live chat make sure that your behavior is like christ's um you see what the point that peter was making there right no matter what people say to you the way that they're going to be ashamed of their behavior is your behavior back to them being like jesus christ's and yes it's extremely important to make sure that you have an answer debate is wonderful giving the gospel is wonderful challenging people and uh, allowing the spirit to use you in the conviction of people is wonderful but notice the extremely important bit there make sure you're doing it with meekness and with fear or as some other bible translations put it with gentleness and respect now just a reminder to everybody out there that in all of your discussions don't attack people don't attack the person themselves by all means have discussions by all means have debates by all means have challenges back and forth but make sure that your conduct is uh, becoming of christians john any comments no i think you've said it well because sometimes we are reading the chat as well as talking and some of you are pretty aggressive to each other so um calm down some of you 
absolutely but uh, we're saying that we do really appreciate you and uh, uh, I, I really do thank you all for your engagement and for watching and for sharing and for supporting Sam over to you let's do some thank yous and then some questions yes yeah and again a thank you from me um, to everyone a single person who is watching both live and also on demand uh, we really couldn't do this without you uh, you are what make our ministry possible um, and you are very much a valued part of that community. Um, but recently we have noticed there have been escalations and I have had to step in a few times. Um, if it does continue, then there will be further interventions and we will keep reminding you. Um, but just we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, we've said we've said what needs to be said. We'll carry on. We've got some brilliant questions and we've also had some donations in. So let's do the donations first. Uh, and dropping the big bucks, always Doki Doki Bible Club, two US buckaroos, a pair character turning around, waving his hand, saying, hey, you, while lowering his glasses. <laughs> uh, take from that what you will. Um, <clears throat> we've Thank also had a, uh, a question from George Bond with a super chat. <clears throat> but I will come to that in a second. Uh, I am Matt, has dropped in four US buckaroos, a pair character exagger exaggeratedly stretching his arm forward to offer a cup of coffee. Uh, thank you so much for that. And again, Doki, five US buckaroos, hippo character with stars growing in his eyes, pumping his arms in the air with the word hype pulsating above him. So, um, I love these descriptions. They're brilliant because we don't have the sticker, so you can just conjure it yeah. up in your mind. It's brilliant. Uh, right, okay, let's uh, move on to George's uh, super chat with 20 Aussie buckaroos. Thank you so much, George. Uh, what are some of the wrong predictions made by evolutionists? A theory should make correct predictions. Diane, do you want to have a go at that one first? Um, well, off the top of my head, the, um, I would say vestigial organs would be one of those. Um, junk the, DNA uh, as well. And, uh, and junk DNA, which is sort of like vestigial D DNA. Um, <clears throat> Uh, a, a hundred years ago, there was a, a, a list as long as your arm of uh, organs that were supposedly evolutionary leftovers. Uh, but as uh, scientific technology has advanced and we've been able to study things a bit more closely, uh, they've all been eliminated. They've all found uh, uh, functions, sometimes absolutely uh, life-giving essential functions for all of these. Uh, uh, more modern variation of uh, vestigial organs is the concept of junk DNA, which only goes back a couple of decades um, when the human genome was first um, sequenced. Uh, people looked for the genes that uh, coded for proteins, so these were very big genes, uh, but they found a lot of DNA in between those and they didn't know what it did. And because they had an evolutionary mindset, they thought, oh, well, that just must be the leftovers of millions of years of evolution. Now that we're doing more study into how genes actually work together, we're discovering that uh, what used to be called junk DNA, uh, because it didn't code for proteins, is actually absolutely essential to life. We have a, um, we have a couple of uh, bits of, uh, about this in, in our fact file. But one of the best ones was uh, about a project called ENCODE where they redefined um, the whole genome as a, a huge um, 
sort of master uh, manipulating or uh, uh, sort of um, a, a huge uh, <clears throat> control panel. Uh, that was the word I was trying to think of. Uh, so all of this junk DNA is actually absolutely essential to life because it controls how all of the other genes actually work. So that, that would probably, uh, vestigial organs and junk DNA would probably be the, the, the most obvious that come to mind straight away. Uh, and in terms of that, like though, I remember, that. Yeah, I remember doing it. Sorry. Yes. Um, I remember doing a debate against the man who won the Rutherford Prize for Genetics in New Zealand. A very um, pleasant man to talk to, but uh, he brought up junk DNA as being an evidence for evolution. And this is before we'd learned an incredible amount about junk DNA and the things that you talked about. So I said, you need to remember that we used to regard the appendix as doing nothing but an evidence of evolution because it couldn't possibly have been created if it did nothing. And I said, well, here's my prediction. We now know the appendix does at least 140 different things, many of which are done inside your mum's womb. So you weren't even looking for it, so don't be surprised you didn't find it, but we've now found it. So be cautious because I predict that coming up, your so-called junk DNA will be found to be useful. A very good prediction because it's turned out to be true. And that man, as pleasant as he is, actually, in the end, would have to concede that junk DNA is not an evidence for evolution. It's an evidence of our ignorance and inability to determine things. The one thing that strikes me in this whole predictability is even Charles Darwin and our friend Charles Lyell, whose prediction was, well, you read Charles Darwin, read his chapter on geology, read uh, the, the section where he says the fossils are the worst part of his theory and then look at all the discussion over that where he predicts that in the next 50 years 100 years 200 years they will fill in the missing bits well it's now 2022 darwin's book came out in 1859 that's quite a few years and you may remember a few weeks ago i held up my textbook from queensland university by professor carter from Cambridge University, who basically concedes that in all the time we've had since Darwin, we have not found the so-called missing links. In fact, he's famous for his statement, once the organism appears, it seems to be inherently stable. He should be given credit for the theory of stasis, but somebody took that uh, a few yeah, years later. But in reality, the worst prediction made by evolutionists is that the fossils would be found to prove it's true and they you'll notice they grab every little tooth and every little uh, toenail and try to put it up as the missing link that's been found and then you never see when it's withdrawn because it inevitably will be none of them are proof of evolution and they all get abandoned sooner or later big front page press when they're found not even a back page mention when they are discarded so the worst prediction evolutionists make is that fossils will be found and they still have not been but what you do notice is the missing fossils are not just random they are systematic they are where you would predict them to be on the basis of carl von Linn's classification system they occur between 
the separate kinds. Now, that's exactly a prediction based on Genesis that the creatures, regardless of how long they've been here, regardless of how they got into the fossil record, would appear in discrete groups. And they do. One positive prediction from Genesis turns out to be true. A opposite prediction from evolutionists turns out to be exactly false. So evolution's had it to be brutally blunt. Yeah. yeah. I was going to mention that uh, the Darwin thing as well, John. I think that whole, because it's, it's not just connected about like transitional, it's also into the living fossils, because uh, that's what Darwin said. It was a term coined by Darwin who said, well, hang on a minute, it's, you know, we don't see evidence really of fossils changing other than fossils remaining exactly the same. So um, it's a, a failed prediction after, after failed prediction. So thanks for that. Great stuff. Um, Sam? <coughs> Indeed, you do. Right. Uh, okay, we've had a very interesting question, which is on point with our main topic today uh -huh. from Boulders Alliance. They say, speaking of biblical archaeology, where is a good site to get information? Well, I will hold up a few good books, um, which we will be promoting tonight anyway, uh, but also uh, a project which we are working on. Uh, or trying to trying to work on in conjunction with our museums project launch uh, here in the UK we've been building a museum collection for a good number of years and in the last few years the Lord has uh, blessed us abundantly with some absolutely fantastic archaeological um, artifacts and discoveries and uh, a big part of our work now is looking into this kind of stuff so we want to actually create a, a website which is associated of course with our main websites uh, discussing specifically biblical archaeology and some of the artifacts and stuff that we have some of which we'll be presenting to you tonight so my part of the tonight's program will be looking at some of the artifacts that we have in our biblical uh, archaeology collection in our museum project collection and John will be giving us a bit of a bigger picture about biblical archaeology in general so soon to come but let me just hold up a few uh, quick books which we sell um we certainly sell on our uh, main site uh, as well as our uk site although this one isn't actually available in the uk yet lord willing we will have it available in the uk to purchase soon so just pray for that because we'd love to get it here it's a fantastic resource dr john osgood who's our sort of resident uh, archaeology and history uh, expert he's a, a fantastic researcher and he's done an absolutely brilliant set of books um we have a set of smaller books some of which i believe are here yes Here's one of the uh, smaller books, which we have two of here in the UK, and the rest are available in Australia. Uh, Stone Age, we've got um, Time of Exodus uh, and Egypt. We've got the Time of Abraham and the Philistines. We've got the Days of the Kings uh, and the Days of the Judges as well, so all biblical archaeologically related. Uh, he does a great job. Um, this book, which is available in Australia, Lord willing, soon to be available in the UK. Just pray for that. Uh, they speak with one voice. In particular, as it says here, a correlation of the biblical record 
with archaeology. And if you speak to John Osgood, one of the big controversies in the world today is that chronology uh, and making sure that you have the right one. And John does an absolutely fantastic job of doing that. Um, generally, biblical archaeology, I mean, you can get lots of stuff on the archaeology of the Bible, but as John will tell you, uh, that's John Osgood, half the time they get the wrong chronology, right? Uh, or most of the time, rather, they get the wrong chronology. But also the good thing which John Osgood does is he doesn't just deal with, oh, this is the history of the land of Israel. He actually connects it in with the rest of the world. It right? gives you a full picture of archaeology. So really archaeology through the light of the Bible. So that's a really important book. One other book I'll mention is another fabulous book by the late Dr. Bill Cooper uh, called The Authenticity of the Book of Genesis. We sell this one. There are others in the series that are available from our friends, the creation science movement here in the UK. Highly recommend it. John, you recommend this as well, don't you? I certainly do. Bill, I, I knew Bill personally right from when he used to work uh, for the government in jails. Uh, not being in jail, he was <laughs> his person associated with the government ministry to prisoners. But uh, anyway, great stuff. Uh, very, very knowledgeable, well personally researched. And also, also dealing with, he has dealing with real artifacts, real history, archaeology. It's not just, oh, here's some ideas or some thoughts. He actually has translations and transliterations of cuneiform tablets and seals and everything, right? He really does his research and it's like 30 odd years of research gone into that book i mean john osgood's book is like 30 odd years of research as well right these guys really know their stuff they've done an absolutely fantastic job so get those resources and support us so that we can get this uh, biblical archaeology stuff up online as well how yeah. about one more question sam before we move on well well I, I mean i've got a few resources i can throw into the ring as well uh sure. i've got this uh fairly wise well, uh, when was this published this was published in um oh goodness me uh 1978 originally print, printed uh but it's still very good jerusalem as jesus knew it archaeology is evidence by john wilkinson uh there we go okay good that's a good there it's got lots of pictures inside you can see all the pictures over i'm trying to do this uh <laughs> sideways um and also as well one other really good resource is um this resource this resource here the esv archaeology study bible uh this came out in 2018 which had all the latest uh up-to-date uh, archaeological evidences inside um, which has been recommended numerous times, uh, and it is uh, it's on my wish list actually. So I think I might have to make a purchase at some point. Um, but yeah, uh, so those are my recommended resources. Good stuff. All right, let's have one more question before we move on to our Go next on, uh, uh, topic, which I've got a few things to show and tell and a bit of biblical archaeology to deal with, and then it's over to John. So there we go. Here we go. Doki Doki coming in with a question. Any creation research material on the dating of the Exodus? <clears throat> Once again. <laughs> now, we have two specific things on the dating of Exodus. To give you a bit of a bigger perspective, uh, the dating of Exodus is actually very, very important in the grand scheme of things because it not only deals with the reliability of Scripture, it also has implications for things like carbon-14 dating. It has implications for Egyptian chronology as well, which is an absolutely enormous mess if you know anything about Egyptian chronology, right? And it's extremely controversial as well. It has implications.
implications on stuff like, well, what is the most accurate text of the Bible? Is it the Septuagint or is it the Masoretic text, right? All these kind of things have uh, big um, discussions which are all kind of centered around the dating of Exodus. If you want Dr. John Osgood's um, argument, which I suppose would be pretty much our sort of... Um, well, this is what I think is the most is the most reliable um, chronology. I don't know what John thinks, but I suspect it's much the same. If you were to read this book, you would get to a date of 1446 uh, BC, which is the date that John Osgood places for the Exodus. Now, if you want the reasons why he places it at that, at that, it's long and complicated and we don't have time tonight. So get the book. They speak with one voice. Also get the book. Uh, it's called... Um, uh, Exodus and Egypt or something like that, Egypt and the Exodus it's the little uh, booklet version of John Osgood's work, that's available in the um, Australia it's available here in the UK as well uh, that kind of wraps it up in a nutshell, but if you want the big long complicated version, which I really do recommend because it's a very easy read, it's not a, 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 a difficult read it's just you know very very thorough um, get John Osgood's book, they speak with one voice, available currently in the sta uh, sorry in Australia Lord willing, soon to be in the UK. Any comments, John? No, I think you've said it in a nutshell, Joe. Good stuff. Well, let's uh, let's move on then to our next little things. We're sort of uh, just over an hour in. I'm going to show you a few interesting little things that I've got with me, uh, and then we'll uh, do uh, a little. I've just got a little segment where I want to talk to you about some of the archaeological artifacts we have in our museum collection. It's not like uh, you know, there's not a central theme to what I'm doing. I'm just giving you an example of some of the stuff that we have, uh, which Lord willing will be on display at some point for you to come and see. But John is going to really hone into uh, a particular point uh, about biblical archaeology as well. So let's show you some of our wonderful artifacts. Vance Nelson. Uh, well, John, you know Vance a bit better than I do. Just give us a, a background to, to Vance and his work. Well, Vance is a guy who uh, um, became a Christian and went to college and got in touch with us, wanted to be involved in what we were doing, and uh, then did a biblical college degree and basically was horrified by the fact that um, he was one of the only people at the college who believed Genesis was literal because he came from a non-Christian background and he was really, really saved by a real saviour who really said that the truth about what he really said. So uh, Vance is very convinced God's word is true from the beginning. But when he asked me what he should do, I said, Vance, what I'd recommend you do is go out there. Don't just read books. Go out you can afford to travel, you can get teams together, you can actually go and look at all the archaeology, collect the pictures yourself and write books about it. So Vance's books, which we stock, uh, and I think you've got some there in England too, and you've just received mm -hmm. some stuff from Vance uh, for yeah, our museum. Uh, Vance is a guy who goes out there, just doesn't read creation books. He goes out there and collects evidence himself. So Take and it from there. Bro. Indeed, he has shared some of that evidence with us. He's done, I think it's five books now. Uh, he's dealt with dragons, which is sort of his speciality, but also into flood fossils, evidence of Noah's flood, uh, evidence of giant 
creatures from the past, evidence of rapidly forming caves and so on and so forth. He's done an absolutely fantastic job with his books. I highly recommend them, uh, get hold of them, but also he's collected this evidence and we have actually been able to obtain some. So I'm just going to run through a few different examples and show you the kind of thing that we're able to get hold of for our museum projects. In particular, this is one that I'm quite excited about. Uh, let me just hold that up there for you. Some of you, especially those of you who are sort of familiar with the creation world, will probably recognize this. Oh, this is the cast, of course, not the original. Uh, you have a, a lovely carving from a temple in Cambodia. Uh, known to those of you who know what we're talking about, Anchor Wat. And in this particular thing, we have this creature in the front. Now, this creature in the front has been interpreted as many different things, everything from a rhinoceros to a chameleon with leaves in the background to everything else. But the one thing which has been well uh, promoted as, especially amongst creation channels, is a stegosaurus, or a stegosaurid, rather, a stegosaurus-like creature, a um, sort of a dinosaur-type creature. Now, Vance is certainly confirmed uh, certainly convinced as we are that uh, this is definitely a dinosaur depiction of what kind probably a stegosaurus but actually Vance has gone one step further than just saying hey this is a type of dinosaur he's actually set up a, uh, a system a uh, several point system in which you can determine not only whether a creature is inspired by a dinosaur but whether it's actually able to be classified as a particular type of dinosaur now he hasn't been able to go that far with that system with that um, Cambodian Angkor Wat stegosaurus but he has been able to with many other dinosaur carvings and depictions which I highly recommend his Dire Dragons book but something else that he's been able to provide for us here in the UK is actually this Chinese vessel just up here as well now this is genuine by the way it's from the Han dynasty it's got wonderful provenance going all the way back we know that it's definitely genuine we know that it's definitely real and it has some rather interesting creatures on it definitely Chinese dragons let's try and get that up into focus there you can see the creatures I mean they're elongated they're long lizardy type creatures dragons for sure but is this a dinosaur or is this something else? Well, they're definitely dragons, um, but we've gone one step further because everybody looks in the creation world for like evidence of dinosaurs and dragons, right? But you've also got evidence of prehistoric creatures, extinct prehistoric creatures, or prehistoric is probably not the right word, but certainly extinct creatures known from the fossil record. And so we can use examples like this with these dragon-type creatures to actually look for evidence of uh, ancient extinct animals that are actually depicted in things like Chinese and medieval and later, um, you know, uh, artwork and so on and so forth. So we're talking with Vance, we're getting lots of great details, this will be a big part of the display, but a really, really beautiful example of a Han Dynasty or Han Dynasty yeah, yeah, yeah. Chinese vessel complete with dragons on the top. Joe, just a quick question, you know that, um, that carving you, sh you uh, displayed a second ago, could this that possibly one, yeah. be a Triceratops? It's interesting, forward. isn't it? Because it does have the um, sort of horns on the head. There's been lots and lots of discussions about what this type of creature is. Uh, it certainly seems to have these sort of, um, you know, frills on the, on the back of it. Uh, the definition of Triceratops is three horns on the head. And as you can see, it's kind of missing the third one. Some have argued that that could be a, a horn down there. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult one. It almost certainly is a type of dinosaur, certainly a dragon type depiction, 
but trying to get a specific identification to it is quite difficult. One of the things that you'll notice with a lot of animal drawings and carvings and depictions that have been done in the past is that they're, while they're clearly identifiable as a type of animal, there is certain, shall we say, creative liberties which, which has been given to them. The funniest one, I think, is uh, when uh, medieval artists tried to do a sort of a, you know, head-on uh, depiction of a horse. It's just hilarious. Go and look it up, right? But you'll see there are certain liberties that have been taken with some of these depictions. So this is why Vans came up with this step-by-step -step thing of, okay, we can certainly say it's a dragon. We can say that this dragon is now certainly a dinosaur, but can we actually get to the point where this is an accurate representation of a certain type of dinosaur? Now, you're not able to go that far with the anchor what draw carving but you are able to go that far with a lot of other carvings and depictions um all of which vance has actually included in his book which is why in his book which is extremely strict about what he allows into it right he went through a ridiculous amount like something like half a million different photos of depictions of dragons from around the world a very select few actually passed all of his self uh, appointed tests which means that only the most strictest actually ended his book and the anchor what one actually didn't make it in so it just uh, shows how important it is to do good research and how vital that kind of work and research in that book actually is um john any comments from you no i think uh, vance's uh, thoroughness in his own thinking is one mm. of the best recommendations for that whole book yeah. and uh you know so that that's probably the best way to put it Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've got one more thing, which I'm going to show you before I move on to my little segment, which is a, a, an interesting little thing. We have this little ring here. Uh, you can see on the outside, it's metal. It's rusty metal. In fact, it is a water pipe and this water pipe comes or it's a section, a thin section rather of a water pipe. This water pipe comes from the Carlo Vivari in the Czech Republic. It's metal. They installed it and they found they had a problem because in the Carlo Vivari in the Czech Republic, they have these hot mineral springs and the mineral springs contain a particular type of calcium carbonate based mineral called aragonite, which is the same kind of stuff that you get like, you know, your stalactites and stalactites, uh, stalactites and stalagmites formed from, but it's a sort of rusty. It's got a, um, it's got a, a very sort of uh, salmon pinkish kind of tinge to it, to a sort of a deeper red kind of tinge to it, to an orangey. It's a, a beautiful, beautiful uh, stone. Now, uh, famous things come from there, like the um, permineralized paper roses, the permineralized teddy bears have been made there as well. Uh, but this is a, a, a completely, you know, those things are hung there to allow the waters to actually, um, you know, permineralize them. But this is a, a purely uh, naturally occurring thing. You've got the water pipes, the water flows through, and look at what it builds up, layer upon layer upon layer of hey, it looks exactly like the thin section of a stalactite, and it, it really is. Of course, the difference is stalactites are supposed to take hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years to form. This thing happened in just a matter of months. And it produces this absolutely beautiful and glorious uh, layering. So Vance was able to take a section of this pipe back. He sliced it up. We've got two of these examples now in the UK, which will go on display um, in the UK museums projects. Uh, and uh, we've even got enough to put a second one on display if we need to. So keep an eye out for updates on the museum project as well as everything else that we're doing. And we'll be bringing you all this kind of evidence and artifact very shortly. 
All right, let's pull up some slides because I'm going to show you in just a short thing. We're not going on for too long. I'm just going to show you um, a few interesting things that we have in our museum collection uh, for you to get excited about. <coughs> Let me just pull it up now. And then uh, I'm going to try and leave a bit of time there for John to go through his segment as well before we finish up with a few questions. All right, hopefully you can all see that. Here's uh, part of our museum collection. We have over, well, that's grown a lot more now. We have probably closer to 20,000 fossils and artifacts in our collection. It doesn't just include fossils. It's got natural history displays. It's got geology displays. And in the last little while, we've really got into that biblical archaeology. And I've just picked out a few examples. We have many, many more of them. So we're looking at archaeological evidence. Remember what I said earlier. Biblical archaeology is all of archaeology viewed through the Bible. It doesn't matter whether you're dealing with a stone tablet that mentions Nebuchadnezzar or whether you're dealing, I mean, that's mentioned directly in the Bible, right? And it doesn't matter if you're dealing with a stone tool from a Neanderthal. Both of them are archaeology and both of them need to be viewed in light of the Bible in terms of the big picture. And when you do that, you get biblical archaeology. That's why Dr. John Osgood can write a book on the Stone Age from a biblical perspective. It's biblical archaeology. So we're looking at archaeological evidence. I mean, we've already mentioned the Egyptians tonight. We'll mention them again later. Uh, we've spoken about some of their dating and chronology. And it's these artifacts, particularly the wooden things like this mummy mask that we have in our collection, that really helps you with the dating side of stuff. Carbon-14 dating, all that. Yeah, it's exciting stuff because you can actually not only date these with methods like carbon-14 and you can compare them to chronologies because they're not always accurate, but you can actually, well, the paint and the pigment and the style is all good indication that you can put them into certain time zones uh, or, or timelines. And it really helps you with creating that chronology. So all this kind of artifact and uh, artifacts and evidence really is very useful. So let's have a look at one particular evidence. We have a Babylonian brick refer referencing King Nebuchadnezzar. You can see me holding it there. It's a pretty hefty looking brick. It weighs a fair amount and it's been cut in half, right? This would have been a big block. All that's happened is they've just cut off the front half of it to make it easier to transport. Now, a lot of these bricks were looted in the early 90s, uh, soon after it became illegal to take stuff out of Iraq. Uh, a lot of them were brought back by soldiers during the Gulf Wars. And uh, what they would do then is chop it down even smaller than this to basically next to nothing except for the depiction. Whereas this was collected a long, long time before that, and it has full provenance, it's got all the legal stuff, in fact, it's completely undisputed because this was in the British Museum for a while. How did we get it from the British Museum to the Creation Research Museum? Well, keep listening and you'll find out. But you can see it's got a cuneiform writing on it. Cuneiform literally means wedge-shaped. It's originally tested by a wedge-shaped stylus. In this particular incident, it's been stamped by a big carved stamp pressed into the wet clay. This has got straw in it. Hey, the uh, 
Israelites. I mean, we were just doing that in church the other day, right? The Israelites who were there, slaves in captivity, were building bricks uh, in Egypt, and they were told, you're going to go now and get your own straw, but you've got to make the same number of bricks, right, uh, just before the plagues came on. Well, all throughout the Middle East, you had bricks that were built. This isn't carved out of stone. This is baked uh, baked mud brick with straw inside to help strengthen it. And that straw, by the way, is datable. You can do tests on it. Great stuff. Um, okay, where did it come from? Well, this was actually collected by the late Reverend Leonard Pearson. Now, Leonard Pearson wrote a number of books about his travels through the Middle East, through the Holy Land. And in his book, he actually references this brick, which he brought back with him uh, in, 19, in the 1930s. His book was published in, first in 1939. So this was back when it was perfectly legal to bring stuff uh, into the United Kingdom. Um, it was the time when things would be put on loan or would often be purchased by the British Museum. And the British Museum sold their own artifacts as well. Uh, things have changed quite a lot since then. But this was actually went to the British Museum to be catalogued and it was on loan at the British Museum for quite a number of years before Leonard Pearson ended up taking it back again. Um, how do we know? Well, there's the British Museum's um, catalogue uh, sort of reference to it, typed up on the old typewriter, but really useful. It, it was assigned to the Room of Writing, as you can see, part of the Western Asiatic Antiquities. And you can see the inscription there, which has been copied out on paper. And you can see the transliteration, right? Literally, letter for letter, depiction from depiction, turned into English lettering. Of course, that isn't very useful without the translation. So let's look at what the translation says. There's the inscription, there's the transliteration, and there's the translation. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who provides for Esgila and Isida, the eldest son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, am I. Now, there's a lot that we can unpack from this. Eskila uh, was part of the temple for the chief Babylonian god Marduk. Marduk is mentioned in scripture in the book of Jeremiah, where it says that, hey, Marduk, where's your power now? Your idols lay smashed because the one true God, Jehovah Almighty, is far more powerful than you are. And what's really cool is that in our museum collection, we have a smashed idol of Marduk. Yes, biblical prophecy really does come true. Marduk has no power at all when compared to the one true God. Um, eldest son of uh, Napa yes, he was the first sort of king to bring back Babylon, right? Uh, and King Nebuchadnezzar, who was his son, who really built the Babylon that you see in uh, the archaeological record, at least, especially the big buildings and so on and so forth, he'd seen how in places like Egypt, previous kings and pharaohs had been almost written out of history because it had their carvings disfaced, that had their temples destroyed, and that have any impictions regarding or referencing them uh, completely wiped over. So Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make sure that his position as the greatest king of all time was stamped into everything that he built. That's why these foundation bricks were all stamped with that reference. Although not all of them actually had that reference, am I? Now, that little reference in the first person, Nebuchadnezzar am I, is actually quite important. Um, it's actually something that even the British Museum, uh, you know, agree upon, point out. They say the in 
description is impressed by means of a brick stamp and you can see down there that last phrase am i is omitted from many bricks and for a long while you will find that scholars of the ancient antiquities particularly in the middle east said that there's no way that the bible can be true because of this what were they talking about well, have a look at Daniel chapter 4. In fact, you can see this all throughout Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar refers to himself in, for instance, the prayer of Nebuchadnezzar in the first person. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, am praising and exalting and glorifying the king of the heavens because all his works are truth and his ways are just and because he is able to humiliate those who are walking in pride. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar had just experienced some serious humiliation from the one true God. Right, hair grew out as feathers, nails as eagle claws, ate grass like an ox. He was too proud, and God humbled him. But notice it's referring to Nebuchadnezzar in the first person. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar. Now this is important because up until you started finding these bricks, which referred to Nebuchadnezzar in the first person, scholars said there's no way that any scribe would dare write down the words, I am Nebuchadnezzar, because that would be considered blasphemy. And so they said there's no way that you can trust the Bible. There's no way that Daniel was written down at the time that this happened, or the book of Daniel rather was written down at the time that it was supposed to happen, because it just simply wouldn't be written down by a scribe. And then you start to see, well, actually, yes, you had to record a completely accurate way of what the king was saying. In fact, sometimes it was actually written down by the king himself. Stamp there by the king. I am Nebuchadnezzar and I say this. Archaeological evidence. Yeah, you see it all throughout uh, the world, especially the Middle East, that this archaeological evidence confirms that the Bible can actually be trusted. Uh, what do we have here in front of us? This rather interesting looking inscription. Well, no, you'll notice this isn't cuneiform. Uh, no, this was another person who tried to stamp his place in history, and he did a pretty good job of it as well. In fact, John is going to actually deal with this in his segment. This is a foundation brick in Babylon, but it was not placed there by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was placed there by Saddam Hussein. You ask, what's he got to do with King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon? Well, he was basically trying to rebuild Babylon. In fact, oops. No, it's not there. I thought I had a, a, a description, I mean, a written down description of what this actually said, but it essentially says along the lines of, um, I, I am Saddam Hussein, and I'm the one who has rebuilt Babylon. Uh, he is essentially copying what King Nebuchadnezzar was saying as well. What's the significance of this? Well, I'll leave that to John to tell you. The importance, well, you can see what we wrote about in our creation evidence news. The I am is very significant, according to the British Museum and archaeological experts, as king signatures are rarely signed with such double confirmation that it was actually the king who authorised this. Just like it was the king who actually said that prayer recorded in Daniel. Um, archaeology confirms the biblical record, the Bible can be trusted, and more importantly, this evidence is in our museum collection. Yes, you can come and see the evidence for yourself. One more thing, which we'll briefly mention uh, about some of the evidence that we have, or a couple more things very quickly. We have Lamach, Hezekiah jars. Lamach means belonging to the king. It comes from the reign of Hezekiah. Ah, the significance, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king. You can read about it in Chronicles. It says that Hezekiah commissioned the building 
uh, and the creation of jars for the storage of grain, for the storage of oil, and for the storage of wine, in order to be able to sustain large areas and cities if they were to come under attack. And they did come under attack by Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, and the Lord graciously and miraculously saved them. Go and read about it in the book of Chronicles. But what archaeological evidence do we find? The jars with the royal seal of Hezekiah stamped into them. Um, with the proto-Hebrew kind of uh, inscription there, actually telling you where this tablet was assigned to and the fact that this was built under the commission of the king. Yeah, evidence that not only was Hezekiah a real person, but actually the biblical record of what Hezekiah did and what happened at the time of Hezekiah is also accurate. And there it is. Hezekiah made for himself storehouses for the yield of grain, wine and oil, pens for all kinds of cattle and sheep folds. And there are the jars from the storehouses. Great piece of evidence. The seal itself consists of Hezekiah's royal emblem, a four-winged beetle around a solar image. The winged beetle and the sun disk are solar images from Egypt. And uh, what's really interesting is this sun disk has another biblical connection as well. And we've briefly mentioned this on this channel before, so I won't go into too much detail. Here's a fairly new artifact that we've got. It's an Egyptian scarab with the sun disk in it, so depicting Ra. There's the Ra sun disk. You can see the wings of Atom, which is part of the scarab beetle, and you can see the underworld underneath. And what you are depicting here is morning, evening, going from the sun going from horizon to horizon, depicting what the day is. In other words, morning, evening, night equals day. Horizon to horizon. What's the significance of this? Well, there's no doubt from archaeological evidence like this that the ancient Egyptians knew how long a day was. Now, that's a silly thing to really conclude, but it's really vitally important when you realize that Moses, who was actually raised by the Egyptians, who's credited with compiling Genesis, and you realize that a day means a day, whether you're Hebrew or whether you're Egyptian. Uh, really important for understanding the bigger picture of scripture so we've been blessed with some absolutely wonderful and glorious artifacts i mean this is just we've barely scratched the surface right we've got hittite pots and they're the whole history of the hittites we've got all sorts of wonderful stuff from ancient rome and shipwrecks and all sorts of stuff the lord has really blessed us so get behind the museum project big announcements coming shortly and continue to support us so we can not only obtain these artifacts but we can also put them on display and take them around with us so that you can actually come and see them for yourself. And yes, some of these artifacts, not all of them, but some of them <coughs> will actually be coming down to Creation Fest with us. So come along to Creation Fest. It's free to come to uh, and actually see our museum set up and our stand there. And yes, we're still looking for volunteers if you're able to come. John, I'll hand over to you. Thank you, Joe. Now, remember, you're dealing with last generation here who hopes he can remember how to actually... So you need to hover over your PowerPoint presentation down at the bottom yeah. of your screen, yeah. click on your full screen presentation, yeah. and then just start scrolling through. Okay, am I there yet? We're there. Yes. Good, so I can scroll through. Okay, so another bit of information for you. Search our newsletters. Search our fact file. You find a lot of what Joe said and I'm saying is either there as an article or an original research from the past 20 or 30 years we've been compiling this. Um, 
my theme is to sort of do two things. One is Craig's gone out to do a field trip today. I've been doing field trips all this last few days. And creation research actually takes scripture seriously when we are commanded through the scriptures to prove all things. Christianity is not a blind faith. Um, you see, Paul writes, if it's not true that Christ has risen from the dead, then Christian faith is a waste of time. And Jesus himself said, you're not just blindly believing, you're to love God with your heart, your soul, and your brains. Now, every one of you who are listening has got brains and God expects you to use them and will account, will be accountable to him for what we've done with those brains. Okay, where have I been? Well, I've been most of this week at that site collecting things, great cliffs, um, some evidence that water has been at different levels, evidence of climate change, the sea's gone up and down, the water level's gone up and down, the water deposits iron where it hits the air, pretty. There's uh, me uh, having one school field trip this week. Look, the little kids were finding fossils. Fantastic stuff. Look at that. And one of the kids took that home. It's a beautiful specimen. And you'll notice it's closed. It's got two halves that are the same. Uh, my grandson and I went back on a different day. You will see what he's pointing to. You'll see those shells that are there. In fact, you go up closer and you can see there's three of those shells and they're all at different angles. They're all shut. They're lamellibranchs. And so you'll find that that means they were buried alive and buried at different angles. They were rapidly and suddenly buried catastrophically. But then the evidence of sea level change here has most likely been caused by the land being lifted up. So there's been lots of earth movement, lots of mud sliding downhill and burying things. Even the oysters are buried shut. Beautiful fossils, great days out. And look at some of the things that we've taken from this site. Look at the giant conch type shell. Oh, there's my shadow with the camera on the right hand side. And look at this beautiful one that came this week. Wow, fantastic fossils. In fact, when you look at some of the guys who've accompanied me, there's Daniel. Uh, at the end of this week, I'll be going back to Broken Hill where he works in the mines over there. But he was in South Australia with me. And look at the fossils. Fantastic things. And Joe's been collecting great stuff in archaeology. We've been accumulating fossils like you can't believe, some of which tell you they used to be bigger because these shells are still here. And these shells have been buried rapidly because that's how they behave. They, they, they shut real fast and they get preserved totally. Oh, one surprising bit. There's a piece of wood contorted and actually fossilized with calcium minerals. There are limestone fossils, petrified with lime rather than the normal sort of silica. But it's a beautiful area to go, great day out. It's been pretty cold this year, but we did find some creatures that have died recently. Do you see the inside of a cuttlefish? Do you want to know how it died? The evidence is there. Big fishy, had big bite of cuttlefish. Well, I don't know about you, but I've used cuttlefish as bait. The fish like them, but usually mine are dead. This one was alive and the fish took a big bite out. So we have fossils, we have creatures that have died just recently, and we can figure out that this one 
probably died in agony. May not have been the fastest death, a pretty quick bite, but then it was swallowed and then spat out. Or perhaps it got away and it just lingered and then died. Not fast like the others. Well, you can see along this beach, yes, I love Australia. I go collecting and there's almost hardly anybody along there. It's great. Um, can you see the top of the cliff there? That was one beach level. You come down the cliff, you can see another beach level. In fact, all along here, you've got evidence of sea level changing many times. Can I warn you? Don't think this sea level stuff is new. It's happened many times since Noah's flood and is still happening. Hmm. Okay. Why mention things like that? Why is Craig out doing some fossil collecting? Well, number one, the Bible tells you to test everything and only keep the things that are true. But number two, when you're looking at evidence, whether it's fossils or archaeology, you need to remember how much the Bible stresses this. Both Luke and, and the book of Acts, which is composed by Luke, start off with statements like, I've gone to all the eyewitnesses to gather the evidence from the people who were there on the spot. So don't be surprised the name given to this document is the New Testament. It's a word that comes from Jesus' use of it. But Testament, surprise, surprise, is not just the name of the New Testament. It's the new legal document. You get to write out a testament as a legal document probably once in your life. It's called your last will and testament. And that's what the New Testament is. The book of Hebrews explains this is Jesus' legal document concerning what you can inherit from him when you become part of his family. Ah, so the importance of archaeology, it matters that the Bible says is true. It matters that when it says test everything, you can actually do this. So let's have a quick read of Isaiah 13 because we want to go through those who've tried to rebuild Babylon. Look what your Bible says. The whole chapter deals with the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, did see. By the way, this makes it a prophecy, and it's prophetic in terms of when it was written. And we know a lot about Isaiah now because it's part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In Isaiah chapter 13, 19 to 20, and Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember back in Genesis when God was angry with Sodom and Gomorrah and he actually overthrew them. And Babylon, verse 20, it will never again be inhabited. Neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there. Neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. Now, I'm sure Isaiah was not the most popular guy on the planet for making prophecies like this. If he turned up in Babylon, they'd string him up. But look at the truth of it. There's the situation of Babylon. Uh, there's modern Iraq. And we know a lot about Babylon. I mean, go and look up Google Roadmaps and look up the Tower of Babel. It's even marked. You can go and visit Babylon. We know exactly where Babylon is. Ah, there's the ruins of King Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, Joseph talked about that. That's been rebuilt, by the way. Not the whole lot. They never made it. There's the ruins of Babylon, the original bits in the front. Babylon was surrounded by thick masonry walls, and Joseph's already spoken about Marduk being actually smashed to pieces. But why didn't they finish 
King Nebuchadnezzar's palace in the present. Make a great tourist attraction. Well, there's a man who uh, actually came from Greece. His father was well known. His father's name was Philip. His name was Alexander. And he was great because as a young man, he basically conquered the then known world. You look at his empire. Dad started at Philippi, named after his dad. But by the time of Alexander's death, he's pretty well known right across the Middle East. There's the realm of his kingdom down into Egypt, across up through Greece, right over to uh, the north of India. One reason why white skin color is so popular in India is that Alexander was white and he went all the way down there and basically introduced the old Greek multiple caste system and introduced it all through to India. And the foundations of so many of the religions of India are traceable back to Alexander the Great. But Alexander the Great didn't live a long lifespan because he ended up in Babylon. I mean, he got an idea about Babylon. He was going to rebuild it. I mean, it was a wreck even then by comparison. And what we're talking about is 323 BC because he spent um, a little time in Babylon, decided he'd rebuild it, and in 323 he died mysteriously overnight because he was trying to do something the Bible had prophesied would never happen again. Not even the Arabs would dwell there overnight. It was a spooky place. You will never rebuild Babylon. But then another guy tried. Sudan Hussein and the importance of that brick that Joseph talked about is that he wrote that he was going to rebuild Babylon and God said through Isaiah you will never again rebuild Babylon so don't be surprised that what happened to Alexander the Great is what happened to Sudan Hussein yep obviously a brilliant strategist with a remind to his own people but look at his fate 2006 I guess that's the closest to a living picture that you'll ever be allowed to see of a, a man being killed. Um, Saddam Hussein was hanged in 2006 because his reputation was so widespread, all of his enemies, as well as his friends, wanted you to know they'd caught him, they'd put him to death. Um, they'd done it legally, even in the eyes of the Quran. But he tried to rebuild Babylon. He'd even written a stone about it. And it said, I'm the one who rebuilt Babylon. And he never did because God's word is more important and it's totally accurate. Saddam Hussein, very ambitious, but he didn't make it at all. Don't disagree with God. Saddam Hussein did and he paid the high price. Now, we've had a fair bit of time sharing things today and we've got about 15 minutes left. Uh, Sam, it's time to uh, have some questions. How do we actually get me out of here? Hover over the thing again. Well, you can just press your Windows key, click on your browser, come back to us. We've taken it down. So um, I think it yeah. sounds like a good time to go and do some more uh, some more questions. Like I say, this is a topic which we could go on for a long, long time about. But um, Okay, yeah. so where have I gone, Joseph? You want to press your Windows key. Yeah, and then click yeah. on, then that brings up your browser. Click on there your you browser. I'm learning slowly and surely. Good stuff. All right. Well, thanks for that, John. That was really great. And to say, we were sort of a whistle stop tour through some evidence and some biblical points and so on and so forth. But uh, let's uh, 
bring up some stuff, uh, Sam, and uh, and, and yeah. have, have, a, have a look. Uh, well, just on, um, I, I noticed that a lot of people have been really, really interested in the um, the Creation Museum. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen some artifacts in person, um, and I've managed to pull up some pictures as well uh, of some coins that I believe we've got in the uh, museum. Is that correct, Joe? We have, yes, indeed. So this is a coin that displays Herod, Herod's seal, I believe. Yeah, yeah, um, we've got and, Herod. And then this one is of Pilate. That's Pontius Pilate, yeah. So we have again. We've got we've got coins of Herod. We've got coin, coins of Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Uh, we've got coins of Felix uh, as well, uh, who of course mentioned in the Book of Acts. We've got coins of Herod the Great. That's the um, 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 baby murdering Herod, and we've got coins of one of the later Herods as well, who uh, was around at the time of. Uh, John the Baptist and the beheading and so on and so forth, as well as uh, the later Herod's, the one who got uh, eaten by worms. So we've got some pretty good uh, New Testament archaeology as well. A lot of Roman stuff, a lot of stuff from uh, uh, the Holy Land, Roman times and so on and so forth. So plenty of artefacts, plenty of evidence. Indeed you do. Right, we'll do some uh, super... Uh, what's it? The super, well, we'll call it super what's it because it's all encompassing. Uh, so, a super chat from George Bond, 10 Aussie Buckaroos. Uh, thank you so much, George. Uh, the only facts of evolution are the missing facts. Uh, and from Doki Doki, a super sticker for US Buckaroos, a Shiva dog gifting a large bone, bowing respectfully. <laughs> Very apt considering we deal with uh, bones on a daily basis. And, uh, oh, no, that's the wrong one. Uh, yeah, here we go. Another Doki Doki donation, 149 US buckaroos, a purple cat. Just a purple cat. Uh, nothing else, <laughs> nothing else needed. And uh, Brother Timothy as well, uh, super chat, 10 US buckaroos. God bless you, brother and sister. Uh, no, God bless you, Brother Timothy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to everyone who's donated. Uh, we really couldn't do this without you. So thank you so much. Right, time for questions. And the first one comes from Doki Doki. He says... I've heard from a critic that there's a city named Tyrus today, so the Bible prophecy of destruction of city of that city wasn't fulfilled. Shall I uh, give a thing and hand over to you guys? Comment. All right. Of course, if you want the biblical prophecy, well, actually, let me pull up the biblical prophecy very quickly. Um, but while I do that, while I pull up the actual prophecy, if I just uh, make a comment, right? Um, Thomas Howard was the Duke of Norfolk. Uh, during the reign of Henry VIII and of Edward VI. He was a supporter of the Catholic Church. Obviously, this didn't go down very well with Edward VI, who was a Protestant. Edward VI imprisoned um, Thomas Howard, and he promised Thomas Howard that not only would his head be chopped off, he also promised that Norfolk would be given over to somebody else. Now, Thomas Howard was actually uh, saved by the fact that Edward VI died very young, and uh, but Norfolk certainly was given over to other people. Now, there's nobody on earth today that would say that, well, that promise wasn't fulfilled because Norfolk in the United States uh, wasn't uh, given over at the time. 
for two reasons. Number one, Norfolk in the United States didn't exist at that time. And secondly, it's at a completely different place, right? So when you're dealing with biblical prophecy and prophecy that God is promising, make sure you're actually talking about the right place. Now, I've got the um, the prophecy up here uh, in front of me. There's a number of times that uh, Tyrus or Tyre, as it's sometimes called in uh, scripture, is uh, predicted about, uh, mainly because of the sort of arrogance of, uh, of Tyre's king. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel says this, therefore thus says the Lord, behold I am against you O Tyre and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for spreading of nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord, and she shall become plunder for the nations and her daughters on the mainland shall be king killed by the sword they will know that i am the lord now you find the first i mean that, that's what the biblical prophecy says right so was that prophecy fulfilled well the first wave of nations to come against tyre was uh, babylon under king nebuchadnezzar uh, babylon laid siege to tyre for 13 13 years i think but it was eventually conquered anyway um and then you'll also find uh, further prophecy that uh, Ezekiel said, and I've got it up here as well, Ezekiel 26. Uh, slightly the, the next section of Ezekiel 26 says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, right? A very specific prophecy against Tyre, king of kings and horses and chariots and horsemen, and he will kill with the sword your daughters on the mainland. He will set up a siege wall against you, throw up a mound against you, raise a roof of shields against you. He'll direct the shock of his battering rams against your walls with axles that will break down towers, with horses will be so many that the dust will cover you, and so on and so forth, right? Almost exactly exactly spot on exactly what happened a little while later when Nebuchadnezzar came up uh, a couple of hundred years later Tyre then fell to Alexander the Great and the Greeks we've mentioned that again tonight and the total destruction of that city by Alexander the Great was also prophesied by Ezekiel slightly later where it says they will plunder your riches and loot your merchandise they will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses your stones and timber and soil they will cast into the midst of the waters and I will stop the music of your songs and the sound of your lyres shall be heard no more and that happened under Alexander the Great. Um, and you will also find that everybody who did not make it into the island fortress just off the coast was actually killed. So the prophecy that your daughters on the mainland are killed was also true as well. And the city was conquered and destroyed in several more waves over the centuries. It was completely wiped out by the Saracens in the 14th century AD, uh, according to my notes here. And you will find that today, since that time up until today, the place of the historical city of Tyre is a place for the spreading of nets. So here we have some very, very, very specific prophecies which were fulfilled over and over again, even up to today. If you want to build a new place and give it the same name to try and argue that, well, that defies biblical prophecy because... Well, it wasn't quite the same kind of prophecy as Babylon, right? God promised that Babylon would never be rebuilt. Didn't quite say the same about Tyre, but it gave specific prophecies of how it was going to be destroyed, when it was going to be destroyed, and what it was going to end up as. And all of those things have proven to be true. So, yeah, biblical prophecy fulfilled. Any final comments, John? Sure. Um, the young lady I married many years ago, um, her father was the, the head of the Bible Society, and uh, that one year they had a touring group 
the Archaeological Museum based in Melbourne, Christian Archaeological Museum, biblical one, bring a display of things as evidence the Bible was true. And so that's when I first got interested in archaeology. And I remember seeing you know, people who'd taken pictures of the fishermen casting their nets on the old stones where Tyre used to be. And today they just bring the boats in. And uh, these guys had personally been there. And you think, okay, now the fact that they're sitting there doing exactly what the Bible prophesied is why it's called a New Testament. It's a legal statement. And if a legal statement has any error of fact, date, uh, location, direction or whatever, it's invalid. So the fact that those fishermen were sitting there doing exactly what had been prophesied is evidence not only that that part of the Bible is true, but that Jesus' promise of eternal life is true for you and true for me, just as his promise of eternal judgment if we reject his free offer of salvation. Now, all the bits of prophecy, including even sadly Saddam Hussein's death and his stone that said, I rebuilt Babylon. Uh, no, he didn't. He, he contradicted God and he paid a terrible high price for it. So evidence that your New Testament is a legally valid document comes from all of this archaeology. It's way more important than just saying, hey, that's interesting history. It's to deal with eternal facts and eternal faith and eternal gift of, of eternal life. Okay, so thanks for that, John. Yeah, and that's why we do this. That's why we collect this stuff. That's why we put it on display. That's why we encourage people with it. It's there to provide that evidence. So um, keep on supporting us. Sam, another question? Got another question. Uh, George Bond has said, question, interested in your thoughts on the Ica stones. I've heard they had some in Spanish museums, but they were removed from public viewing some time ago. I'm assuming these are the stones that have dinosaurs on them? <laughs> Yeah, well, John, I believe you've seen some of these. I mean, I'm, I'm, um, I've seen some of them. I've seen uh, replicas and stuff as well, as well as some of the original ones. And uh, I would uh, go with the real expert on this, which is Vance Nelson. But you, you go ahead, John. And uh... okay, likewise, I've seen the ones that Vance has shown me, and his arguments against them being real is the presence of pencil marks. Uh, where the lines would be put in. Uh, so having Vance went down to the museums to supply them and basically, and I don't mean to be sarcastic, he wanted to pick up some for checking himself and they didn't have any, but they said come back in three weeks. Um, basically I'm summarising, but that, that sort of is the level of confidence you can have in these. They are not very uh, convincing at all. More information is available. Uh, from Vance, if you ever do need it. Yeah. And I say the, the stones themselves, as a, as a group of stones, as a group of artifacts, they are real. They're genuine. We've, we've known about them for, for a long time. The problem is, like anything in art, uh, antiquity, once something becomes popular, the locals realize that there's a place to be money made, right? Um, so the chances of there being dinosaur depictions on them, well, there's was almost, you know, you definitely a good chance that there were some original ones with dinosaur depictions. The problem is, as soon as you start getting getting interest in it all of a sudden that's when the pencil marks and so on and so forth come on right and 
when you start getting the, the replicas made. And unfortunately, once that happens, whether it's dinosaur footprints with humans or anything else, uh, all of a sudden, everything becomes thrown into question, um, particularly when you're dealing with a small select ones that are supposedly you're supposed to depict dinosaurs, right? Um, so there's there's a number of issues with the stones in general. There's certainly some that are real. There are definitely completely many that are fake. Uh, trying to determine the two is difficult. And basically, I think we can be safe to say, as of yet, there aren't any provable, one, genuine ones with dinosaur depictions on them. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. John, did you want to carry on or? No, have you got any other questions? We're running out of time, Sam. Yeah, sure. We've got one more here from Iron Matt. Lovely. Uh, this will bring Diane into the question. Uh, so look alive, Diane. Uh, creation research. What about ERVs, endogenous retroviruses? Uh, evolutionists use that as evidence as well as creationists. Uh, yes, we actually have uh, a question about that on the Ask site. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> the question to ask about uh, these uh, things called uh, uh, endogenous retroviruses, are uh, what, what are they? Are they actually viruses? They are actually pieces of DNA. They are real uh, and they do exist uh, in the human genome. But is that label an accurate uh, one <coughs> in terms of did they come from a virus or are they just a, a, a stretch of DNA that happens to look like uh, DNA that you find in a virus and if you want a detailed um, uh, answer to that there there is a question on the Ask John Mackay site uh, that gives you a bit of the background to them uh, but you need to keep in mind um, just because these are called retroviruses uh, doesn't mean they actually are there there are real things called um, retroviruses uh, <clears throat> but uh, these um, no one has actually seen a piece of viral DNA be inserted into human DNA and then be passed on from generation to generation. Um, but do have a look at the detailed answer that we have on the Ask site about that. Sam's just put it up in the chat, yeah. so thanks, Sam. Oh, excellent. oh that's yeah. good. See, yeah. I'm, I'm a busy bee behind the scenes, guys. Yeah, yes, that, that's, that's good. <laughs> yes. Great stuff. Great stuff. Thanks very much for that, Sam. Thank you all very much for all of your questions. Thank you all very much for your comments and your watching and sharing and liking and everything else that goes on behind these videos. So thank you all very much. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Um, it, we're, you know, we've still got whole new topics and stuff which we're going to be dealing with that we've never dealt with before, as well as going more in deeper with some of the topics that we have dealt with before. We've got plans coming up uh, to uh, get some guests on again. We've had guests on in the past. We're going to get some more guests on in the future. We've got a great set of programs for you as well. Next week's program is going to have a look at a requested topic, Ice Age. What is the Ice Age? Did there, you know, is there, was there an age of ice? Was there a period where a lot or a significant amount of the continental land covered in ice? Um, how does that fit into the Bible? Is there a course? All these kind of questions, right? All fascinating stuff dealing with geology, dealing with climatology, the history of climate, climate change, implications for today, fossils and everything else. So we'll be dealing with that next week. Be sure to join us. Uh, any final words from the team? 
Yeah, the weather channel here says it feels like 1.5 degrees minus where I am at the moment. I'm freezing. Right. <laughs> Another ice age. Clearly, you're having yep. the ice age down there. Yeah, we're, we're definitely not having the ice age up here. Yeah. It's supposed to get up to 40 uh, in a few yeah. days. Well, it's going to go higher, actually. Grade, Some so places it's going to go up to like 42 or 43. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, definitely time for climate change chat. But anyway, <laughs> see you. Just, before we, just before we go, I do like what Neil said here. Uh, thanks, CR team and chatsters. I think we've chats. got a new name for our, ch our chat. Chatsters. Yeah. I love it. They're there the we chatsters. go. The chatsters. I, like I love it. it. Thank you, Neil, for that. Yeah. Really. Yeah. No, great stuff. Thanks all very, very much, guys. We appreciate it. We will see you next week. Join us then from me and the team. Yeah. Catch you later. Bye.